All right, uh, while we are waiting for the audio to get ready, let me just, since this is my last talk, for those of you that are not familiar with White Horse Media, that's our ministry uh, from Revelation 19, 11, Jesus coming on the white horse. We like the name White Horse Media. We pick the name because we're inspired by Jesus and his return and we want to help people get ready for his coming. Uh, I'm the director of the ministry, but I am not the rider on the horse. We make that very clear that Jesus is the rider, he's in charge. And we're just little people here trying to be involved in a big work. Uh, we have a newsletter that we send out. If you'd like to pick some up, I've got some copies here. We have them on our website as well, whitehorsemedia.com. We have a lot of books, a lot of resources to help people prepare for the end, and they're great evangelistic tools. We have a lot of books. We have two new little books, pocket books, coming out on the Sabbath and the Mark of the Beast. That'll be out in just a couple of days, published by Remnant. We have a DVD called The Ultimate Passover. Uh, a documentary designed to reach Jewish people. It's going to be a fantastic resource, resource in the church if you have Jewish friends. Uh, if you have Muslim friends, we have another 13-part documentary, or it's, it's actually a, a series, not a documentary, that we just finished, and it's now airing on 3ABN, called Islam Revisited. I don't know if any of you have seen any of those, but there's, I think, four of them down, um, nine left to go. It's a very powerful series designed to communicate with Muslims. And our ultimate goal is to reach the descendants of Ishmael, the Muslim world, and to reach the descendants of Isaac, the Jewish world, and bring them both together at the foot of the cross. Quite a challenge, but we're excited about it. Um, and we have this book, The Character of God Controversy. Um, I don't know if, I don't see Gilbert here, but... He's normally in the back. We do have, uh, oh, there we go. Well, we have uh, quite a few copies of this book that we brought with us. They're at our booth, and, but we're packing up our booth tonight and heading out in the morning. Uh, we dropped the price down to $10 a book if you'd like to pick one up. He should have them in the back when this meeting is over, and we also have them at the, at the booth. Uh, let's see, what else can I tell you? Uh, we just moved our ministry to Washington. We appreciate your prayers. We are... Uh, doing everything we can to try to stay warm and teach truth in these last days. That's what we are committed to. This is my last talk of this little mini-series on the character of God controversy. Part three is about Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's what I want, what I want to zero in on. All of these subjects, I feel like they're bigger than I am. They're, they are. They're bigger than any of us. But it's God's truth, and God's truth is in his word, and that's the truth that we need to understand. And ultimately, God's truth is centered in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ himself. And focusing on him is what it's all about. So let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to give a little review of some other things we talked about and then tie different things together. I strongly believe that we're in the final days. We may not have a GYC next year, and I hope not. What I mean by that is I hope that we're, we're almost at the second coming by next year. We want Jesus to come, and we're not far away. An overwhelming surprise is going to burst upon the world in a short time, and Jesus is going to come, and we need to be ready and do our part to help other people get ready. Um, it reminds me of a little event in my life uh, a number of months ago, maybe six months ago, my little boy, Seth, was uh, at that time, I think he was still three. I don't think he had turned four yet. And he came up to me and he said, Daddy, I want to check my email. <laughs> now, he's only three. And um, he doesn't know how to check his email. What he does is he just gets on the computer and goes, and just types on the keyboard. And then he watches Daddy check his email. And actually, he's gotten two emails from Gene Boonstra. He's on the, he goes on to the website, myplacewithjesus.com. If you've ever seen that site, it's awesome for kids. And he's now four, and he has learned how to push the mouse button and, and fill out all the uh, questions in 13 Bible studies on that website. And now he's a graduate. He's got his own certificate, and he's a member of the uh, My Place with Jesus Club. And now they have a separate website where we can go in, he can move around things and uh, watch Gene Boonstra tell stories, and it's, it's great for, for kids. 
And uh, he, he, he has actually gotten two emails from Gene. Right to him, dear Seth. So he has had a couple of emails. But anyway, uh, that same day he said to me, uh, I want to check my email. Sometime right around there he also said, and I want to go onto eBay and let's see what we can buy. Because <laughs> he knows that we go often go onto eBay and try to find him some little Thomas the Train toys or things like that. He's a great little boy. But anyway, when, I, when he told me that, Daddy, I want to check my email. Daddy, I want to go onto eBay. I thought to myself, brother. I said, uh, you know, if we were living a few years ago, you'd never have a little kid say something like that. I never said anything like that when I was a little kid. And I thought, times have changed. Times have really changed. And the reason why I'm telling you that little story is because uh, times are going to change again. We are living on the edge of the end. And times are going to change. They have changed. And they're going to change. And if there was ever a time for us to be connecting with Jesus and understanding the message of his righteousness, it is right now. And I'm going to do my best to tie a lot of threads together and tie this in with the third angel's message. So let's bow our heads again. Let's pray and ask, ask God to bless us and help us. Heavenly Father, Father, we give this time to you. Please take charge. Please speak through me. Please speak to all of us from your word and help us to understand a little more about what we are to be saying and doing in these final days and when the crisis comes. Help us to look to Jesus, to keep our eyes on him and to understand his matchless charms and his incredible love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Revelation 14, verse one. We looked at this verse earlier today. Verse 1 says, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him a hundred forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. And we talked about this, that this is telling us that God is going to have a people in these final days who have his character, his name written in our foreheads. It becomes a part of our thinking, a part of our minds, a part of our hearts. So the character of God message is right there in verse 1. If you go down to verse 9, we have the message of the third angel. Verse 9 says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worships the beast and his image and receives his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. The mark of his name. The mark of the beast is really the mark of the beast's name, which means his character. You've got the character of God and the character of the beast. One group is going to get the character of God in their foreheads. The other group is going to get the mark and the character of the beast in their foreheads. Two groups. Everybody's going to have somebody's character inside of our foreheads. We're all going to be reflecting one side or the other in the final days. And then verse 12 says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's the conclusion of the third angel's message. So verse 1 talks about the character of God in the foreheads of his people. And then verses 6 to 12 is the message his people are supposed to be giving. And the third angel's message is the final message. The last message his people are supposed to be giving. It warns about the beast. It warns about the image and the mark. And then it says that those who get the mark will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out into the cup, unmixed with mercy. And as we read in our last hour together, uh, where does that whole imagery take you back to? It takes you back to Gethsemane, right, back to the garden where Jesus wrestled with that cup unmixed with mercy, and he drank it. He drank the full outpouring of the pure justice of God against sin in the garden. Uh, and it's just powerful, this verse, where it talks about those that get the mark will drink that cup 
And then it says they'll, they'll suffer in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Lamb, right there in the presence of Jesus. Uh, and I think that Jesus will suffer as well when, when he looks at these people who are suffering. And one of the reasons why he'll be suffering is because he'll know that he drank the cup already for them. And they didn't need to be drinking that cup. But they, they're drinking it because they've rejected him. And it's, he, he's gonna be, they're going to be right there in his presence, the presence of the Lamb. Uh, the purpose of the third angel's message is ultimately to bring us into the presence of the Lamb, to bring the Lamb into our hearts, to bring Jesus into our hearts, and to help us to understand what he did so that we don't have to go through that, so that we could be saved. And then verse 12 concludes with this conclusion of the third angel's message, which talks about those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Both sides. The third angel's message concludes with a balanced message. And not only that, but when it gets to the end, what is the last word in the third angel's message? At the end of verse 12, before the period. Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the foundation of the message. The book of Revelation comes from Jesus. He gave us this message. He's the foundation of the message. He's the heart of the message. And then he's the conclusion of the message. He's the last word. And it's a, it's a balanced message that combines the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Some people focus on the commandments of God. And Adventists used to do that prior to 1888, as we've been told, that we preach the law, the law, the law, the commandments, the commandments, the commandments, until we were as dry as the hills of what? Gilboa. Some of you know that quote. That's right. Uh, and then other times we've swung away from that. We don't want to preach the law, the law, the law. So we want to talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we sometimes forget the law and just focus on Christ. And that's what uh, people are often doing today. Outside of our church, inside of our church, the pendulum has been swinging back and forth, back and forth throughout history, even in Adventist history. Focusing on the law, neglecting Christ. Focusing on Jesus, neglecting the law. A hundred years ago, actually it's over a hundred years ago now, uh, in the year 1888, there were two Adventist preachers from California. And they went to a general conference session in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they gave a series of talks. And in those talks, especially one of them named E.J. Wagner, it was A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner at the 1888 general conference session, and what they did, what Wagner did, that was so powerful, was that the pendulum, going back and forth, back and forth, the pendulum centered. And he preached the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ together. As Ellen White said, the righteousness of Christ in relation to the law. She was there and she said, I see the beauty of the presentation of the righteousness of Christ in relationship to the law, as the doctor, E.J. Wagner, has presented it before us. And what Wagner did was he put the law and the gospel together, the blending of the justice of God and the mercy of God together, centered in the cross. And when Ellen White heard that, when she heard that, she said, every fiber of my heart went, amen. It was so powerful. There was, a, there was a, an electrical energy you might say, which really was the energy of the Holy Spirit that was there at Minneapolis testifying that what this man was preaching was the truth. And not only did he take the character of God, the true character of God, of mercy and justice, and not only did he focus on that character implementing a plan that upheld the attributes of his character in Gethsemane on the cross, but he then put that message into the heart of the third angel and tied it in with prophecy and with the mark of the beast. And when Ellen White saw all of that, she said, this is it. This is the message that our people need right now. And then she tied that in with another verse, Revelation 18, verse 1. 
Revelation 18.1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And she connected these verses and said that the, the, what we could call the fourth angel, who comes down in Revelation 18.1 and lightens the earth, she said the purpose of that angel is to give power to the third angel's message. What we read in Revelation 14, that third angel's message about the cup and the lamb and the mark and the law and, and the gospel, the purpose of the Revelation 18.1 message was to give special power to that third angel's message. And that was the power of the Holy Spirit, energizing the preaching that Wagner was giving at Minneapolis. Now, I have a strong conviction that when the final time comes, we need to be able to preach this message from the Bible. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to share with you some, some more key quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy. But I want to stress that when the final crisis comes, the majority of our preaching is not going to be from the Spirit of Prophecy. And we need to use her books and give her books out like the leaves of autumn. I believe that. But when we're standing before uh, the cameras, before CNN and Fox News and, and all the major networks telling the world why we're not going along with the mark of the beast and defending our faith before the judges of the earth, we need to be doing it from the Bible. Right? We need to see it right there and open our Bibles. We're not going to say to... Uh, you know, some major network host, if, if Bill O'Reilly interviews me when the final time comes, uh, I'm not going to say, well, you know, it says in sixth volume of the testimonies, page 99. I'm not going to say that to Bill O'Reilly. Now, I might hand him a copy of Great Controversy and say, read this book. But I'm going to be opening my Bible to Revelation 14 and reading it straight from Scripture. And that's exactly what Wagner did. He preached it from the Bible. And that's what Ellen White said we need to be doing in the final days. At the very end of the Great Controversy, right near the end, she has a chapter called The Scriptures Are Only Safeguard. And she points us to the Bible. And so while we, need to, we can learn from the writings that God has given to us as a gift and that we can share them with others, we still must never forget that in working with a world out there of people that don't know anything about what we know, we need to be able to show them what the Bible says and preach the message from the Word. We've got to do that. And if we don't, uh, it's just, you know, it's just not going to happen the way the Lord wants it to happen. Now, in that light, uh, let me share with you a couple of quotes, quotes here. Uh, page 103 of the book that I've written. Let me see. Christ Object Lessons, if you're taking notes, Christ Object Lessons, page 415 says, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. This is one of the great character of God quotations. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. Extremes are on all sides about God's character. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed. A message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of His glory, the light of His goodness, mercy, and truth. Uh, a lot of people quote this. And sometimes they quote it to support theories that aren't true. But it's still there. And it says that we do need to know God's character. And this is a message from God. And it must be proclaimed... But his character must not be uh, misunderstood and misinterpreted. And it says that we need the light of his glory, his goodness, his mercy, and his truth. Any message about the character of God in these last days must be based upon truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Christ Optic Lessons, page 415 puts the character of God at the middle of God's final message. Now, here's another quote. We're going to put them side by side. 
This is uh, sixth volume of the Testimonies, page 19. It says here, the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. So Christ Object Lessons, page 415, says we need the message of God's character. Sixth volume of the testimony, did I say that right? 619 says that we need the message of Christ's righteousness. And when I look at both of those, it seems pretty clear to me that the message of the character of God and the message of the righteousness of Jesus Christ go right together. We can't take one and pit it against the other. They go together perfectly. They're both messages that need to be combined to lighten the earth with its glory. And as again, as we go back to Revelation 14, 12, we see this blending of the law and the gospel. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, both. Here's another quote about the combining of both of them. Gospel Workers, page 161. It says, if we would have the spirit and the power of the third angel's message, we must present the law and the gospel together. For they go hand in hand. A, as a power from beneath is stirring up the children of men, the children of disobedience, to make void the law of God and to trample upon the truth that Christ is our righteousness. A power from above is moving upon the hearts of those who are loyal to exalt the law and to lift up Jesus as a complete Savior. See that? So if we're going to have the power of the third angel's message, we've got to put both together. Just like I shared with you, what makes Gethsemane so powerful, what reached my heart was the combining of the elements of God's attributes in one revelation. That's what really uh, changed me. That's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that. If you just talk about love, it doesn't reach me. If you just talk about justice, you terrify me. <laughs> if you talk about justice and mercy together, you convict me and you draw me. That's what God did for me. And I, you know, I'm one of those people that was out there and has come in here. Uh, I was lost and now I'm found. And there's other people out there like me. And if you're going to reach the people out there like me, and if I'm going to reach the other me's out there, or people that are like me, uh, we've got to have the truth as it is in Jesus, which recognizes the attributes of God, his true character, blended and manifested in Gethsemane and on Calvary. And that is the power of the third angel's message. That's what we're told. Now, let's go to Romans. Let's have a Bible study from the book of Romans. And then we're going to tie this up, wind this back up with Revelation and with the final crisis. That's my goal. And may the Lord help me. When E.J. Wagner came to Minneapolis, he gave a series of Bible studies for the ministers. And it was based largely on Romans and Galatians. And he did, it, he did it right from the Bible. And the Lord really blessed him. It's tragic that he eventually left the Lord and left the church. Same with A.T. Jones. They both went off the deep end because Satan attacked them furiously because of the message that God had given them. And we need to find that message in our Bibles. Romans chapter 3. Let's take a look at verse 10. And there's so much involved with this. We could be studying for five hours, but I've only got another 33 minutes. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to put the core elements together. Verse 10, Romans 3.10. Paul wrote, as it is written, quoting 
the Old Testament. There is none righteous, no, not one. That's a good place for us to start. <laughs> there is none righteous, and then Paul clarifies, no, not one. We're all in the same boat. And then when you read verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, and onward, it's not a pretty picture. It's a, it's a picture of humanity. In chapter 1, he describes the Gentiles. In chapter 2, he describes the Jews. And then in chapter 3, he says, we're all in the same boat. None of us are righteous, not even one. Now, the word righteous is important. Uh, what does the word, what is righteousness? What does the word righteous mean? Uh, let me see if I've got these quotes here. If you do a Bible study on the word righteous, righteousness, uh, here's a number of quotes that you can find. Let's see, where is it? Psalm 119, verse 172. God says, or David says to the Lord, all your commandments are righteousness. Romans 2.26 talks about the righteousness of the law. Romans 9.31 talks about the law of righteousness. Steps to Christ, page 61. Righteousness is defined by the standard of God's holy law as expressed in the ten precepts given on Mount Sinai. It's very clear when you read the Bible and Ellen White's writings, and Ellen White's writings agree with the Bible, that righteousness in Scripture is expressed in the law of God. And the reason is because the law of God is a transcript of His character. And God's character is righteous. It's right. And God wrote with His own finger what's right. And that's why His law is called the law of righteousness. It is right to be faithful to your spouse and not to commit adultery. It is right not to steal. It is right for children to honor their father and their mothers. I sometimes open my Bible and show my little boy. I said, Seth, look, right there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I said, Seth, it's right. When I first showed him that text, I showed it he was probably two and a half. And I opened it right up and I showed him, look, children, obey your parents. And he ran under the covers <laughs> of the bed, just ducked himself under, and I think he knew the Lord was talking to him. <laughs> and I'm trying to teach him what's right. Seth, this is what's right. Yeah, remember we read that one of the teachings of spiritualism is it, it doesn't distinguish between right and wrong. If there was ever a time in this world where we needed to know what's right and what's wrong, it's right now. And the Bible is very clear that uh, righteousness is defined and expressed in the law of God, in the Big Ten. Not the Ten Suggestions, but the Ten Commandments. Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. When we look at the law of God, and if we look at it with spiritual eyes, we realize that we have had other gods before God. We've had our idols, whether they're material idols or images in our heads that are not correct. We've taken God's name in vain. And that doesn't just mean saying the wrong words, but our, if God's name is his character, how often have we called ourselves Christians but lived like the devil? We can take God's name in vain by the way we live. We haven't kept the Sabbath holy. Sometimes we just can't wait till Saturday night. You know, but is it really in our hearts, you know, to delight in the Lord, to delight in the Sabbath, to appreciate the Sabbath, to enjoy the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Honor our father and our mother. Have we honored our parents? Don't murder, the scripture says. We can murder, John wrote and Jesus said, even if we have hatred in our hearts, if we hate people, that's considered to be murder. Uh, committing adultery, commandment number seven, doesn't just apply to the physical act, but Jesus said if we look lustfully in our minds, We've already committed adultery in our hearts. Sexual purity is what the law of God requires. Don't steal, number eight, which means not taking anything that doesn't belong to us. Don't bear false witness, number nine, which means telling the truth, not lying about other people, telling the truth about people. 
And number 10, not coveting things that belong to our neighbor, even inside of our hearts. The 10th commandment, some people say, well, the law of God is just dealing with outward actions. Not true. The 10 commandments goes deep, 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 deep into the soul. And the 10th commandment, not coveting, is dealing, dealing with our, our hearts. In Patriarchs and Prophets, it says it strikes at the root of all sin, which is the selfish desire that I want this when it's not mine to have. Verse 19, Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law. Now how many people does this apply to? How many people does the law speak to? Some people say only Jews. That was, uh, the law was for the Jews in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. We're Christians. Well, Paul wrote, this is New Testament. And here he's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. The law is speaking, it says, to those who are under the law, that every mouth, every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become, and what's that next word? Guilty, Guilty before God. Right, powerful passage. In the light of God's law, if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we look square into it and see it as a reflection of God's righteous character, then we see ourselves like looking in a mirror. You know, you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, first thing, and you often don't like what you see, right? <laughs> and when we look square into the law and the Holy Spirit shows us its spiritual nature and we see how it affects every aspect of our lives, and we really look carefully, then our mouths are stopped. Silenced. We have nothing to say. And how many people does this apply to? Every mouth. Not just Jewish mouths, Gentile mouths, Muslim mouths, mouths, Wiccan mouths. Every mouth. To all of us, it says, the whole world will become guilty before God. And that word guilt is, is key. In the light of God's law, the Bible says we're guilty. The whole world is guilty. Uh, the third commandment says those that take God's name in vain, it says the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. In other words, God will hold that person guilty who breaks his law. And we're guilty. We're all guilty. No matter how much our mouths try to get out of it, we can't, right? In the, in the light of the law, our guilt remains. And um, we have no hope in ourselves. Wagner once wrote in one of his books, E.J. Wagner, he said, some people get so discouraged, they say, I, I, I'm about to give up on myself. I'm so discouraged. And then he said, I wish you would give up on yourself and then rely on Jesus because he's the only hope that we have. And in the light of Romans 3.19, the condition of humanity is one of guilt. And guilt is there no matter whether we believe it or not. Uh, it's on our consciences. You know, we can rationalize it and try to wiggle out of it, but it doesn't go away. It's there. It presses upon you. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And there's no hope inside yourself. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. Verse 20 says, Therefore, therefore, in that light, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. In other words, once we're guilty, like verse 19 says, of breaking the law, all of our efforts to keep the law, as good as they may be, are not going to change your condition. When you're guilty, you're guilty. Imagine a man who's guilty of murder. He gets thrown in jail. He's waiting for six months for his trial. Six months later, he comes out and he stands before the judge. And the judge says, are you guilty? Did you do it? And the man says, yes, your honor, I did it. But that was six months ago. And I've been really good for the last six months. I've been in my cell, and I haven't murdered anyone. Isn't that enough to get me off the hook? What's the judge going to say? He's going to put the gavel down. You're guilty. 
And the reason is once you've committed that crime, all your future obedience will not remove a particle of your guilt. When you're guilty, you're guilty, and that's it. And once we know that we're guilty, Paul says, all the deeds of the law, all the efforts to obey, how much you try, how much you want to do it, even if you say, Lord, help me to obey, which we need to ask Jesus to help us, but even that is not going to remove your guilt. It doesn't happen that way. No flesh will be justified. Now, the word justified means to be not guilty. That's pretty simple. We're either guilty or we're not guilty. And we're guilty, so we're not justified. And then it says, for by the law is the knowledge of what? Of sin. And what that means is that when we look at the law, the law gives us a knowledge that we're sinners and that we're guilty and that we need a Savior. What was happening before Minneapolis was that the, the brethren in their um, misguided attempts to give the third angel's message, they were teaching the law, the law, the law, but they were telling people, this is God's law, obey it. And they were bypassing a critical step. <laughs> Pretty critical. Because if you just hold up the law and say obey it, you can try to obey it, but you still got all this guilt on you. And trying to obey as a guilty sinner, you know, you're just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And what Wagner did at Minneapolis was he lifted up the law, but he lifted up the law as a means of showing people their guilt and then leading them to Jesus Christ. And that was different from what the, what the brethren were teaching at Minneapolis. And Ellen White said, that is powerful. And Wagner did it not by quoting sixth volume of the Testimonies, but he did it by quoting Romans chapter 3. And he did it right in front of the ministers. He told the ministers, you're guilty and you need a savior. Powerful preaching right from the Bible. By the law is the knowledge of sin. It shows us our need that we're sinners. Now then verse 21 says, but now. We already read verse 19 says now. But then verse 21 he says, but now. Now something else. Now the, the righteousness of God without the law, which means apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is building his case. He's saying, look, we're all guilty. We're all sinners. We're all, uh, we're not righteous. And then he says, but now there is another source of righteousness, which is apart from the law. It's separate from the law. And that righteousness of God is being manifested. And what is that righteousness? That righteousness is centered in a person. And that person is Jesus himself. As uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 says, his special name is called the Lord, our righteousness. 1 John 2, verse 1 says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That Jesus Christ is righteous. Now, how did Jesus become our righteousness? How did he get that special name? He did it by coming down into human flesh, into humanity as a human being, like you and like me, and living for 33 years through trusting in his Father, a surrendered life, and step by step by step, point by point, resisting the temptations of the devil. At every point, and Wagner and Jones both taught that every time Christ resisted a temptation, whether it was in the wilderness or wherever he was being tempted, whenever he resisted the devil, he wove another stitch in the robe of his righteousness. Stitch by stitch. Yeah, wow. Step by step, temptation by temptation, with you in mind and with me in mind, he was consciously seeking to develop a character in humanity of perfect righteousness of obedience to God's law, which is his own law, because it's his character. But now he's doing it as a man to become our righteousness. And then at the end of that life, he not only developed a perfect robe of righteousness 
spotless, without stain, without guilt. But then at the end, he, in Gethsemane, he made the choice to take the sin of the whole world into his mind and into his heart and to experience the separation and the justice of God against sin and to pay the price, the full price in Gethsemane on the cross for your sins and mine. That's why he, he is a perfect savior. A perfect savior is Jesus. And now, Paul says, this righteousness without the law, except from the law, is manifested. But it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets witness to it and say, that's it. God's law looks at Jesus and says, perfect. He's it. He's got what I'm looking for. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto or into all and upon all them that believe for there's no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God Jew Gentile Baptist Adventist Catholic Protestant all need a savior all have sinned and broken God's law and fallen short of the glory or the character of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's centered in Him whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice through faith in His blood, His precious blood, to declare His righteousness. Not your righteousness or my righteousness, but to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God or the mercy of God. To declare, now look at verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, wow, this is apocalyptic. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It's just so powerful. The character of God, his mercy and his justice have implemented this plan. And the plan is centered in Christ and in His righteousness. So that when we choose, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. When we choose to surrender ourselves to Him entirely, to respond to His goodness and His love and His mercy, and to give up our sins, and to trust in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Him, and His righteousness. When we trust in Him, then God can do two things. He can be just, which means He can maintain His justice legitimately. He can uphold it. And yet, at the same time, He can be the justifier of the person that believes in Christ. That is the, and Ellen White said, glorious truth, just to His own law and yet able to justify those who believe in Christ. And to be justified means to be not guilty, to have your guilt taken away. That's how he can, like it says in uh, Exodus 34, that he will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't clear the guilty, but if we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, who became sin for us and took our guilt, then somehow God can clear the guilty. He can't do it, but he can do it. <laughs> he did it. He can do it because of, because of Christ. And what Wagner did at Minneapolis was he lifted up Jesus as the only hope of humanity and urged people to look away from man and to look to him, to focus on him, to look at his love, at his plan, at his goodness, at his mercy, 
that he loves you, that he did it for you. He did everything for you. He drank your cup. He wove your robe. He offers you a white robe. He drank your cup. I, I read an illustration recently about a, a guy that had an old beat up car that was just a clankety clankety car. But you know, that was all he had and he thought it was a good car. He liked this car. But then one day someone drove up a brand new, you know, just gorgeous sparkling car right next to his car. And then when he saw the other car, then he realized, you know, my car is not really in such good shape. In the light of the contrast, then he saw the rickety, raggedy, tinkering old car that he had. But at first he thought it was great. But then when he saw the other car, he realized the contrast. And then he realized that the, that the man who was driving that beautiful car and parked it right next to them, next to him said, I, 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 I brought this car for you. <laughs> I want to give it to you. How'd you like this new car to give up your old car? And then he said, but there's one condition. There is a condition. And the condition is that you're willing to give me your car. To give me, you know, everything. Give, give it to me. And then I'll give you my car. And that's up to you. Would you be willing to do it? That's the choice that we have to make. He did it for us, but we still have to choose whether we want the new car, the new robe, his righteousness, or whether we want our own righteousness, which is filthy rags, which isn't going to get us anywhere. Which, If we stand on the day of judgment in our own righteousness, what do we get? Second death. Doesn't sound like a very good option, does it? So it's all there. God is just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus Christ is the answer. Now, a couple more texts, and then we'll go to Revelation and wind this up. Um, Revelation, or I'm sorry, Romans 5, verse 5 says, Hope does not make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad or poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. Through the message of the cross, through the preaching of the cross, lifting up Jesus Christ and his righteousness, God pours out the Spirit into our hearts. It's the channel for the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 4, when the Holy Spirit comes in, which is really, ultimately, the presence of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus. And Romans 8, 4 says that the righteousness of the law, the righteousness of God's law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ come into our hearts and we let him in say, Jesus, I can't trust myself. I'm un I don't have anything. I'm just stripped, naked, blind, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're my hope. You're my righteousness. You're my savior. You're my, the lover of my soul. You're everything to me. And we open our hearts and let Jesus come in then the power of the Holy Spirit comes in. And when Jesus comes in through the Holy Spirit, he brings his righteousness with him. And he clothes us, and then he fills us with that righteousness. And the result, according to Paul, in Romans 8.4, is that the righteousness of the law can then be fulfilled in us. It can be kept. We can keep God's law through Christ and the gospel and his righteousness and the Holy Spirit coming in and changing us and enabling us to do what's right because we love him. Now, go back to Revelation 14. And I've got about eight minutes to wind this up. I tell you, this is so powerful. When the final crisis comes, and I don't know when it's coming, I'm not a prophet, but it's very possible. People are saying the economy is just going to continue to unravel, and maybe it will. And who knows how much grace God's going to give this debt-ridden country of ours with a nine or ten trillion dollar deficit. 
Who knows? One of these days it's all going to unravel. It has to unravel enough for people to get desperate enough to accept the mark of the beast, right? And when the mark of the beast is finally enforced, it's going to be the final, in their eyes, grand solution to the crisis, to bring everybody back to God. Back to God. Go to church on Sunday. The enforcement of the mark in an hour of desperation. When that time comes, and we're brought to the test, and the cameras are on us, because we're not going along with it, we're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing up, we're sticking out, then what is our message? We need to be preaching the third angel's message, the three angels' messages. And we can't just tell people, you've got the wrong day, go to church on Saturday, and you'll be fine. It's not enough. Not enough. We have to, as Revelation 14.9 we warn about the beast and the image and the mark in the forehead, the actions, and in the hand, which ultimately is breaking God's law, right? We need to lift up God's law and show people that they're breaking God's law, just like Romans 3 does. All the world becomes guilty before God. It's the wrong day, and God's law reveals the sin of a, of a world that has gone in the wrong direction. And then what do we do? We need to continue on with the warning about the th third angel in verse 10 and about if people continue to go in that direction of going against God's law, they're going to drink the wine of his wrath, his pure wrath, unmixed with mercy. No mercy, which is eventually coming, poured out into the cup. And then we can go right from there to Gethsemane. And we can say, but the, the good news is that in the garden, God became a man. The God who has the law became a human. And he took your guilt of breaking the law, guilty before God. He took all that guilt before God and he agonized and wrestled and made a decision. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass away from me, but if not, I'll drink it. Your will be done. And Jesus drank the cup of the sin of the world without any mercy in Gethsemane and on the cross. And we need to lift that up. Like Ellen White said, if we have to have the power of the third angel's message, we lift up the law of God and then we lift up Christ as a complete savior. Both come together in the third angel. And then when it's over in verse 12, we say, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Why do, why do these people, eventually these saints, why do they keep God's law in the first place? What enables a person to really become a commandment keeper anyway? The only way is through Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's through the Savior. It's through His righteousness. It's through His gift through His grace, through what He did in Gethsemane on the, and on the cross. And once we see that, and we don't bypass that step, but we center the world in that step, then people will be brought to the foot of the cross in repentance. They'll see their sin and their Savior. They'll see the law and they'll see the gospel. They'll see justice and they'll see mercy. They'll see the whole plan by the power of the Holy Spirit coming through you and through me. And we're going to be giving it from the Bible. From the Bible. When that final crisis comes. And as they embrace Christ as their only hope, He comes in bringing His righteousness with Him. And that enables us by His grace to then become commandment keepers all ten, including the fourth, from our hearts because we love him and we appreciate what he's done in Gethsemane and on the cross. These are the divine elements that are in the third angel's message. That is how the righteousness of Christ. Some people, once somebody once asked Alan White and they said, what do you think about this message of justification by faith that these men are teaching from California? 
And she said, what they're saying is the third angel's message in verity. And I thought, you know, well, how does that make sense? And now I know. Now I know how justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. Because when you combine the law of God, exposing Sunday and all the other sins of this world, and then lift up Jesus Christ as our only hope and salvation and justification through faith in Him alone, as the channel for the power of the Holy Spirit, which enables us to keep God's law in truth, and become like one of the 144,000 with his name in our foreheads and our mouths speaking truth, then we know how justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. It's the only message that will help us in these last days. One more quote, and then we'll wind this up. says here, 16:19, the message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God, which closes the work of the third angel. Christ Optic Lessons, page 415. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. And how is that final message a revelation of God's character of love? It should be clear by now because it's a revelation of his character and his justice and his mercy that has been manifested in his plan implemented in Gethsemane and the cross to save our souls from sin. And that is the message that we have got to preach from the Bible during the final crisis. And, I, and it's coming. That crisis is coming. And when it comes and the cameras are on you and on me, may God help us to, from our Bibles, teach the truth. What do you say? Amen. And now do you know why, now you can understand why Satan is working so hard to pervert our understanding of the character of God because it has uh, threads of deception that weave in to everything we believe. And it undermines, ultimately, the true message of the third angel. And that's why we've got to avoid those ideas. Stick to the Bible. Stick to the truth. Stick to um, the truth as it is revealed in Jesus. And uh, not get off track. It's too late to get off track. Now's the time to get on track with Christ. Well, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. Uh, Gilbert, do we have any copies left of the book back there? If you'd like to pick up a copy of the Character of God Controversy book, we have them back there. Our website, whitehorsemedia.com, has lots of inf more information. Um, pray for us. We'll pray for you. And may God raise up a generation <laughs> of young people to go out and share Jesus like a light that burns in the midst of this dark, dark world. Let's kneel together and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Father, we sense the Holy Spirit here speaking to us. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I've tried in the best way that I could during these times we've had together to communicate what you have burned into my soul. And we just pray, Lord, that you will help us to take our eyes off man and to look to Jesus, look to your love, look to your merits, your worthiness. We don't need to be discouraged because Jesus is worthy. He is righteous. He's everything. And he loves us more than we'll ever know. Lord, please, may the message of your righteousness sound from one end of the earth to the other. Please prepare your people for the final days. And please, Lord, come soon. Come soon and take us home. We long to be with you and to get out of here, off this planet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.
This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.